Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Film, Film Squawk. Squawk. A Year in Review, 2019. This 2019, we embarked on podcasting about 12 films, specifically, almost exclusively directed by women. Woo! Holla. It's exciting. It's a little bit different than our 2018 uh, podcast schedule, where we definitely featured many male directors, of course, telling women's stories, but the male gaze nonetheless. This year, 2019, of our 12 films, 11 were directed by women. What? That deserves a little bit of applause, I think. Wow, wow, wow. So when the world says that not enough women are directing film to be nominated or to be recognized, I mean, we found 11 that we were able to get Mm. in our little town to podcast in our little podcast our little show you know i think i think others could too what do you think i think that maybe it would be helpful for the academy to listen to crow talk because then they learn about so many different women making film and directing film what? and writing film are you listening academy i mean women just are an idea film yes they're they writing are. film yes they are no <gasps> And we normally begin, as you know, with our yays and nays. And I have to say right out the gate, that is my yay. My yay for 2019 is that we were able to feature and dive into 12 incredible films in their own right and 11 specifically helmed by women. And I I find that to be an exciting uh, challenge and divergence from 2018. And I'm really appreciative that as a collective, we were we were set on doing this. You know, it wasn't that difficult to find these films. They were all there. Yay for that. That's true. That's a great yay, Rochelle. My yay was a little more film specific. Uh, My yay was Parasite (laughs) this year, which we did not crow talk about because it was such a surprise. Um, So that was my yay upon reflecting over the year. um, Parasite. And how it swept the academy's spoiler because i'm not a, a spoiler spoiler for the academy award spoiler. <laughs> spoiler for someone out there um yeah my yay would be how well it did when i was so expecting it to not do well my yay is foreign films but yeah specifically parasite and the farewell like yeah i just love both of those films and i'm glad that american audiences had access in a mainstream way to both of those stories And The Farewell was actually a film that we got to podcast about last year. The others include Bird Box, directed by Suzanne Beer, The Breaker Upperers, directed by Sammy and Van Beek, Captain Marvel, directed by Anna Bowden, High Life, directed by Claire Denis, Booksmart, directed by Olivia Wilde, Midsommar, directed by Ari Aster, The Farewell, directed by Lulu Wang, Hustlers, directed by Laureen Scafaria, Our Bodies, Our Doctors, directed by Jan Haken, Unintended, directed by Anya Merman, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, directed by Marielle Heller, and Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig. So nays, Cassidy Stacy, drawbacks to the 2019 filmic year. My nay says, who planned the Oscars? Question mark, question mark, question mark, exclamation mark. My nay is also connected to yours. Um, I specifically wrote 
um, corporate feminism at the academy and uh, how there was a lot of uh, reference to the fact that there was a lack of women present, even though we had some terrific wins at the Oscars. The most notable moment was the handout with the conductor to conduct one moment of the evening. Why didn't that woman just conduct the whole thing? It just felt very weird uh, upon reflecting on the whole night and how there were there was Steve Martin and Chris Rock saying, where's all the vagina? Like, I don't know. Upon reflection, I was very dissatisfied and bummed out by the handling of all that. So that's my nay. I think my nay pertains to all years, and it's just where we are at right now socially in our value and our evaluation of film. And it's probably most or significantly apparent during awards season sort of what Stacy was saying about this whole corporate feminism we talk a lot about how many people are nominated in, in certain categories and and we make blanket statements and we hear blanket statements that no black people are nominated no women are nominated and then there are other categories where where individuals are nominated black people women and these are important categories. These are valid categories. They may not be best director, but they are still art and they still take blood, sweat, and tears. And people pour their souls into all these aspects of filmmaking, not to mention the technical Oscars that we don't even watch, that we don't even see. So I am very much an advocate for equality across the board. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying that the nay for me is by considering certain categories superior to others, we're negating the work of important individuals and their contribution. That is also helping change the face of film slowly, but I have to believe surely. So that's my nay, is just the language that we are using, the blanket statements that are not representative for all categories. If I could drop this mic, I would, but it's connected to a stand. <laughs> Just an add-on to your nay, Rochelle, a female won for the first time for the score of a film, for composition of score. And that's a big fucking deal. It's hella important. It's huge. Yeah. It should not be overlooked or relegated to the bottom of the pile or called out and said that that doesn't exist because Greta Gerwig wasn't nominated for Best Director this year. That doesn't sit well with me. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you for bringing that info, yeah. Cass. That's well, huge. Yeah, and even like best production design mm -hmm. was won by two women. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. women were still winning awards. So mm -hmm. yeah, I loved what both of you had to say. Goosebumps. Thinking about maybe all the way back to the beginning of the year, but more more specifically to the beginning of, of what we experience when we experience film, that opening scene, right? Do we have favorite Initial scenes from, from any films this year? My favorite opening scene is Jojo Rabbit. It just, uh, it covers a really brutal part of history with humor and, you know, a spoonful of sugar with that opening sequence. My favorite opening scene, the one that's sticking out in my mind, is Booksmart. Um, <laughs> oh, man. And it's, it's really the first two scenes because she's listening <laughs> to, you know, Maya Rudolph 
whisper positive affirmations in her ear and then she has a dance off like an organic dance off with her best friend and so it's just like I was just so hooked from the first three minutes of that film I was in locked and loaded yeah I felt like I was watching something I intuitively understood yes that I hadn't necessarily seen represented on film yet yes just like that unspeakable connection that women can have with one another mm-hmm. Trans- it just transcends language yeah totally yeah I feel like we should have known that that was going to be your favorite now that we you're saying it like, we should have the, the the language you know yeah. transcends words we should have known like what are we you should have right known <laughs> mine too is Jojo Rabbit and Yes, I love the opening sequence. I love his call to arms and him amping himself up. And more than that, I love that I went into this film thinking I wasn't going to like it. I did. And you know, psychologically, that means you if you do like it, then you like it even more. But ultimately, I'm watching this young boy get really excited to be a Nazi and is talking to Hitler and then there's Taika Waititi and he's the funniest Hitler and I'm looking at him and I'm like, man, I love you. How am I doubting you right now? And I think he might be my Wes Anderson. Oh, definitely. Mm. I think he might be because I've always tried to understand people's connection to Wes, you know? Like we dug in, uh, not this year, but last year in 2018 to Isle of Dogs and we had a really fantastic dialogue about that, that good old boys room, the writing room, and just Wes Anderson in general. Plus my partner, Brandon, loves Wes. You love Wes, Cass. Yeah, I Not do. Not necessarily I, have, I Love Dogs. I but. feel, yeah, differently after that. Po- or it was just, Stacey had mentioned this before we started rolling, but it was like unearthing realizations that we didn't understand were in us. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I just, watching this film and uh, the production design, the writing, oh my God, the writing, so fantastic and i just was like taika you're my wes you're a deep i get it i get it now i think i get it he's better better (laughs) i said it i did too i think i I mean i couldn't say because i never got the wes anderson thing and so i really have tried to like refrain from passing big judgment because you know people are diehard i'm gonna be diehard watiti second that same So another aspect of film that I was pretty excited about this year were more technical or like favorite movie moments. Um, I like the idea of reviewing favorites because there's so much that we take in all year long. And sometimes to be able to go back and review what we've podcasted about, but then also the films that made our top 10 lists or our favorite list for the year and just sort of sit with it again and re-experience it. Sometimes we see film at the beginning of the year and, and then you don't watch it again. And if you don't go back and sit with it, you don't get to relive that beautiful experience. Do we have moments for you, Stacey? Was there a special moment, technical or otherwise, in film this year that sticks with you? I put down Midsommar for some technical moments that were just really interesting with the breathing flower. And I also, I I wrote down two films, Midsommar and High Life 2. All of the practical effects in that film um, really made me uneasy and created this claustrophobia that I really enjoyed. So those were my knee-jerk technical moments. I wish I could go back and watch every single film again that I have watched. Um, because obviously we had some big films like The Avengers, Captain Marvel, with all of these amazing technical 
feats. But those were the two films that came out to me the way they they harnessed those those technical skills to tell the story. I think I would have to say, again, Jojo Rabbit, just for the editing and the overall um, construction of the film. It was very tight. Very tight, very funny, moving, mm-hmm. AF. Um, yeah, so technically, I think just as a whole put together, it would be Jojo Rabbit for me. I end up really connecting with the placement of the camera and the emotion that is evoked based on the space that's created in the environment. So I become less connected or consumed by specific shots. Moreover, I'm interested in the way that the character emerges in those shots. You know me, I'm all about the storytelling. That's my favorite part. It's just storytelling through uh, an in-tune director and a cinematographer that is capable of capturing that characterization in a different way is really exciting to me. My favorite films of this year, of the 10 that I have uh, listed, two of them were films that we podcasted about. So a lot of the films that I will probably end up talking about today outside of direct podcast uh, questions will be in relation to those films. So like Heloise's question to Mariana in Portrait, there's just a moment that's created. If you've seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, you, you'll you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to spoil it, but there's a, there's a certain moment where a question is asked and the space that is created, it's like a lifetime is lived. And everyone's involvement in that moment, in that scene is breathtaking. It's breathtaking. Uh, I also love the tension created um, in Parasite when the family is hiding under the coffee table. You feel the entire space of the house, but you feel the confine of the table and you also feel the mess under the couch. It's like you're feeling um, like a top-down type of pyramid of emotion and anxiety and friction. And I just thought that that was masterful. It was also very well paced. So not only did I see the whole environment, but I felt like I could could roll with it. Kind of, because it was kind of freaky. Like, oh my God, they're going to get found out. But I really appreciated that. And... I loved when Charlie finds Nicole's letter at the end of Marriage Story. I love that's just the characterization coming through in in a close, like a very tight and close shot that only really allows space for the sun and then eventually like a sweeping motion to be able to see Nicole overhearing him read this letter out, out loud. It's beautiful. Um, hopefully that's not too much of a spoiler. And I, I still really loved um Alexis and Luke running through the sprinklers in waves. I loved the Technicolor. I loved the way that color was utilized in waves. Um, but I really appreciated the saturation, the drug-induced saturation of of that cinematographer's work in specifically the sprinkler scene. And, you know, Jennifer Lopez on the pole. Gotta love Jennifer Lopez on that pole. I was going to say when Usher yeah, yeah. came in, I that was Very like sure. my first. Plug your ears, plug your ears if you haven't seen oh, Hustlers. I but apologize. seriously, Usher baby. Another add-on for me would be the lighthouse, the aspect ratio, the fuzzy quality. Was it 35 millimeter? I think it was. It was shot on film. The cinematography of that film was really breathtaking, and it was just so gritty. The actual drunkenness on set. It was messy. You know, It was a little bit fuzzy. Sometimes it was hard to see things. So I really appreciated that as far as a metaphor for these two men who were marooned essentially and losing their minds slowly. I felt like I was losing my mind just trying to view the film. Even after viewing the film, I still felt like I was losing my mind because I feel like 
due to how well the metaphor was done, you can interpret that metaphor in numerous ways. So it was one that I continued to talk about after viewing it. I was like, maybe it was this. Maybe it was this. Maybe it was this. No spoilers. This. I appreciated the the grittiness as well, especially uh, juxtaposed the brightness of that lighthouse and the light at the end and how blistering it is. I appreciated that incredible, vast difference. Um, having to hold that, it, it was blinding, and I think intentionally so. A surprise moment for me was Hustlers. Ooh. Knew it, of really? course, yes, <laughs> yes. We oh, all we saw that film one. together, and we like had our jaws our dropped, mouth- and we're like. My mouth was dry from keeping it open for over an hour and a half. Um, I was not prepared for how much joy I was going to experience watching that film. That nostalgia effect, man. Oh, my gosh. Just everything. I mean, there's the nostalgia, of course. But then it was was so well put together. Very well made. The The performances were so good. The story was tight. J-Lo's body. J-Lo's body was tight. It was all pretty tight. It was so tight. Um, Wow. I was not prepared for that at all. Me either. That was, I was like not very excited going into the theater. Yeah, I was just neutral. I had no expectations. And I mean, it was like a second into the film. Our jaws just like We just kept looking at each other like with our mouths open like, is this really happening? Well, and I had read reviews that were very favorable. And so when Cassie sat down, she's like, so are we going to like this movie, do you think? And I'm like, I'm not going to say anything. Rochelle knew. And then it starts and Cassidy just looks over at us like, what the fuck? We were so happy. We were so happy. It also had Cassidy's alter ego. Oh, it. my God. Cassidy's throw up alter ego. We can cut this out. It's not relevant. Cassidy, we we Cassidy the- vomits often. Yeah, we said it in the podcast. Go listen to it about hustlers. <laughs> I forgot about her character. And something that surprised me this year, I was not expecting at all. Talk about thinking something's going to be terrible going in. Even worse than Jojo Robert for me was my uh, expectations for Joker. Now, Joker is my number 10 favorite film of the year, which is fairly high, but it's only rated a seven. So that that in and of itself is not terribly astronomical. But my surprise was we went into the viewing. We went into the viewing, my partner, Brandon, and I um, just really thinking we were going to hate it. We saw it very late in the season. It had been out forever. And within like maybe 20 minutes, we looked at each other and we're like, shit, because we both were liking it. And then about less than 10 minutes later, the entire power grid went down and we had to leave the theater. <laughs> so then we had to sit with that half hour experience of the Joker for like almost two weeks before we could go back in our schedule to finish it. And we continued through the rest of the viewing, the new viewing, the second viewing, maintaining that feeling of this is better than we expected it to be. He probably has his own reasons. Mine are specifically because of the blatant representation of the biopsychosocial model that is utilized specifically in psychology, but in other disciplines as well. It's the idea that, yes, someone will have a mental illness, but their socio-emotional environment will also contribute to their behavior as well as their biology. And I did not think that this film um, 
was a boohoo film. I didn't feel like Joker was some sort of character that was enraged because he had a mental illness. I believe it was uh, Trifecta. And I loved that representation. I hadn't seen, I didn't feel like I've seen that representation in that way before. And I don't, I don't think that's a popular opinion. And that's probably just adding to the fuel that I liked this film so much more uh, than I thought I would. And Joaquin Phoenix is brilliant. So I already really like him. But I think that was my biggest surprise of the year, uh, though I, you know, I was surprised by Hustlers too. Uh, that that Joker experience really will stand out in my mind for a long time. I think. Mm-hmm. I'm so ashamed I have not seen it yet, but I'm excited to watch it when it's available to rent for cheaper on Amazon Prime. <laughs> the other film that also surprised me was Parasite, because I was going in expecting more of just a straight horror film and not such a commentary on social justice and uh our classism issues in our modern world um yeah that was such a pleasant surprise and the pacing was so lovely sometimes those types of films that kind of ride the line between like dark comedy and horror I can get bored a little bit with pacing this one was perfect so that was another surprise I definitely appreciated the writing uh the screenplay for Parasite. Uh, I really locked in. I thought it was very well, like you said, paced. Similarly, not not to the extent, but I also felt like there was a layer, uh, layered element and a lot of fun, quirky surprises in Knives Out. I had mm. a really good time with Ryan Johnson's Knives Out this year. And that uh, writing was uh, definitely something that I'm I'm was thankful that he got nominated for. Uh, that was it was nice that he got that nomination. I, I understand why he didn't win, but I did I did find that to be a good time. It was a fun, yeah, super fun. fun. Just such a fun film. It feels like a holiday movie too. Mm, I saw it totally. around Thanksgiving, but yeah. it like feels a dysfunctional such a, family. <laughs> yeah, like such a holiday totally. film. It's all the amazing Secret sweaters. Holiday film too. Did any particular writing stick out to either of you? For me, it was Jojo Rabbit for sure. It absolutely deserved to win though I have some pretty big blind spots this year I feel with regards to writing all of it (laughs) um Jojo Rabbit was an easy one for me I felt like that was just so well done so tight it was brilliant what do you think your biggest blind spots are this year Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh, can we just say, gentle listeners, that we have been anticipating this film forever, and it's still it's come to our town for one night, which was a few nights ago. I thought it was here finally. I was like, yes, I can go see it. No, no, it came for one night, and now it's gone and gonna come back again in a couple weeks. Rochelle's very committed, beautiful film woman, <laughs> but yeah, it's been a little frustrating having not been able to see that yet. I think that would definitely have an impact on some of my answers here. Yeah. But. Well, I was I was surprised I, to a degree. I was surprised that France chose to submit Les Mis this year instead of the runner up for Cannes, which is Portrait. I was surprised by that. But Les Mis is a, it's a political film. And that makes sense that they were, you know, they had a specific angle. But I don't know. If Parasite hadn't been around, Portrait would have taken the can this year. Uh, and so that was, I was curious. I still haven't seen Les Miserables, and I really, really want to, um, but I wasn't able to find it. Uh, it hasn't come to town uh, yet, and I, I couldn't see it before the award show. So I definitely believe that's one of my bigger blind spots. And I, I don't have any judgment um, 
I just find it curious. And so it kind of is motivating me to seek that one out as soon as mm. possible. So I have a better idea of Brian's motivations. What about blind spots for you, Cass? Um, I think blind spots for me, I didn't feel very well viewed this year. I just didn't get to watch like all of the best film nominations. Um, and I wish I would have. 1917 was one. I think it was just anticipated to sweep by some critics. So I, I wish I would have seen that. Still haven't seen that one. It was just a very busy year. And the Oscars happened so quickly. And Stacey really thought 1917 might win. I mean, so many people did. Totally. I found it to be a very small film. And I really didn't understand the hype outside of it being a personal story. But man, people liked it. I wish Honey Boy would have been nominated oh. for anything. That, for me, is my favorite screenplay because... He worked through, Shia LaBeouf worked through his actual childhood trauma by writing that screenplay. And I think it got a nod somewhere. So like maybe it, the, Yeah, it was so beautiful. And, you know, when he was on the Disney Channel, like, I feel like I've grown up with him because of that. We're like similar age. But the film depicts that portion of his life in part. And... Oh man, it destroyed me. I was I was in such a terribly down mood for like hours after watching it. Justin, my husband, kept being like, "Everything's okay. <laughs> Shy is okay," <laughs> because it was just such an emotional deep dive into childhood neglect. Like, holy shit! It should have gotten way more award nods. It should have and any awards, BAFTA, the Oscars, whatever. It, yeah, it was, I was just blown away. And I've been, that was probably for me the film I was anticipating the most in 2019. Because it was on your list. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I just remember hearing about it and thinking the whole concept of him portraying his father was just incredible. But yeah, was not expecting to just be emotionally destroyed by Shia LaBeouf. Well, his performance was fantastic. I loved him in American Honey. I loved his rat tail. We've talked about this. You both love his rat <laughs> We've tail. We've talked about I'm the rat tail. Fan. It's the dreadlockiness <laughs> of the rat tail. Well, did anyone see Queen and Slim? No, I have no. so many blind spots. Um, I did not see Queen and Slim. Didn't have access to Malik's A Hidden Life. Same. I missed Bombshell, so I really oh, had no pulse. I'm so pissed. I, no I missed pulse Bombshell. On the best actress, blah blah blah, this year at Same. all. Miss Judy. I'm really the most upset it. about missing. And we were working a lot, and every evening it was playing at like 5 p.m. <laughs> and worst it was time ever. It was on the way out <laughs> the too, and I would be like, "We're going tonight," and then it wouldn't end up working out. Pissed. I'm really I'm excited to seek it out. Watch that. Out. On. Yeah, I want to see their performances. Uh, I have been told that Charlize is unrecognizable. I mean, yeah. I mean, when is she not, though? Honestly, she does she's great. so. This is pretty good. exceptional. I did not know it was, it was her. Really? Through the trailer. Yeah. Oh. The only other time, I mean, Monster is another example of her going all in for a role. I mean, she gained, what, 30 pounds? And, but even Tully. Tully, too. she did that too. But I recognized <gasps> her in Tully. They, they did something to her eyelids. Doesn't matter. God, I loved her oh, in Tully. I yeah. loved Tully. God. Love that movie I so hard. loved Tully. I love that movie so hard. So much. Oh my gosh. Just makes me think of Mackenzie Davis. She is amazing. <sighs> She's in something coming up in 2020. Happiest season. Kristen Stewart. We're podcasting about it during the holidays. Lesbian holiday rom-com. Lesbian holiday rom-com. Yeah, it's already on the list. That's one of my most anticipated films for 2020, actually. Me too. Now. <laughs> 
Another film that didn't get a lot of love this year that I have pretty high on my top 10 list is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Did mm-hmm. either of you end up seeing that? No, I watched. No, no, I didn't see that. I think that the entire project's fascinating to me. Uh, Joe Talbot wrote this screenplay with, I believe, his two best friends, I believe. And one of them was the star. He ended up playing, I believe, Jimmy was his name in the in the film. And the character Montgomery was fantastic. I believe the actor's name is Jonathan Majors. And it's this, it's this story about a young man, Jimmy, who is trying to make sure that his heritage home, the home that his ancestors lived in in San Francisco, is kept up. It's like his way of holding on to his family. And it's really a saga of he and his best friend, Montgomery, who is so loyal to him, uh, going through like the motions of helping restore this home that's owned by someone else he just shows up randomly to like paint the eaves and like take care of this home and it's really a love letter to to san francisco and like probably like a sorrow filled love a love letter that's sorrow filled because a lot of people who who lived in san francisco and had homes in san francisco have been pushed out uh, gentrification was a huge aspect of this film. So the the crew that created the film and the work that they went into promoting it and just the quality of the film is stand out this year. I think it falls at um, like number seven, I think, on my list for top 10 of the year. And I believe it uh, is being spoken about pretty widely on other podcasts, just going back and filmic podcasts, looking over the year of films that maybe didn't get the love they deserved. Um, and it it's presence on my top 10 list also led me to think about how many of the films that I love most this year were directed by individuals with writing credit on the film itself. And 80%, so eight out of 10 of my top films, the director also is listed as a primary writer. And that, it's so interesting to go back and look at these types of stats and how you appreciate or regard film because like I said, I'm all about the writing. You guys know this characterization. And it's reflectant in in that listing for me. But only two, excuse me, three of the films in my top 10 were directed by women. Mm. So, it, you know, there's there are pros and cons, right? There are ways for us to grow. And then there are identifying markers for that's, us. That's an amazing observation. I mean, it makes so much sense that a writer on a film is the best candidate to direct the film really because they have just such a I mean and maybe not but I love that observation just because they have a vision for the film as they're writing it obviously and just such a thorough understanding as well for what they're trying to pull out of the characters or the love letter to the house or whatever it may be that I loved that Rochelle I obviously agree I think the only caveat would be they just can't edit the film as long as they're not the editor on the film mm-hmm. and they have an outside eye uh, trained or if they have a co-writer. I, I mean, yes, I obviously am drawn to that uh, from page to screen journey. Obviously, with what we do, it's a huge part of who we are. So it was fun to see that reflected. I love that. That's a really cool observation. What was everyone's favorite podcast? It's the same for all of us, isn't it? Is it? Is it? Should we all say it at the same time on the count of three? One, two, three. <laughs> not the same wow. so interesting. interesting so 
So yeah. why Hustlers? Yours, your favorite podcast this year, cast was Hustlers. Yeah. And I think it's because I always love a film, you know, adapted from real life. So love a true story. Love it. And yeah, I think I was just like so high on life from viewing it. So it was just like a giddy, fun podcast. You know, maybe we didn't dig in deep and I didn't maybe learn like life lessons as I do in some of our podcasts, but it was just fun. It was just really fun. It was a lot of fun. So much fun. That was probably the most fun podcast. I will agree. I agree. I agree with that completely. Second that. I completely agree. Most fun goes to. Did you say High Life? High Life No, Midsommar. Okay, you said Midsommar. Okay, so tell us about that. Um, Well, as we all know... (laughs) I'm interested in the the whole commune thing a little bit. Were I to be maybe more unhealthy or like had a really effed up childhood, we would definitely be in cult right now. Probably a little cultish, just a little bit, just like drawn. I would like to say I would not. (laughs) You could have totally avoid the cult life. You've got let the record state Cassidy not prime suspect for Uh, cult. Stacy and Rochelle prime prime suspects maybe a little bit. Um, just about the group grief element was mm-hmm. so fascinating. Um, and I also just have like a physiological memory of doing that podcast because that film was so disparate in its content and the visuals, you know, it was so bright and beautiful and full of flowers and it was so fucked up and just so hard to hold it was so but like also kind of exciting to hold like yeah it put me in a weird place in my head and I feel like I remember talking about that and feeling that way throughout the recording so that was the most memorable I think podcasting experience (gasps) or whatever (gasps) (gasps) yeah we did that sound (laughs) we did that (laughs) we just did it again (laughs) I watched the only time I've done a double feature was with Midsommar and Toy Story fucking four, <laughs> which I watched first. That is crazy. That is the biggest mistake I've ever made in my cinematic experience. <laughs> so I feel like so that's also up. why that was like off my radar. I'm just like, you know, it was hard. It was just really hard to get through. I was in such wow. a good place going in. I was in such a happy such mood. a Disney place. And then such a like, what the hell was I doing? Double I don't featuring, know. obviously. <laughs> Such well, a, we curated that day that's really messed well. up i forgot about that i'm so sorry that happened to you how about you rochelle my favorite podcast though it wasn't the funnest or the scariest uh mine was definitely book smart because i felt like i was scratching at some new meat for myself and just mm. my 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 theories about film and and women in film and and how nostalgia impacts comedy and how if we've seen the same comedy through the male lens for so long how women being funny doesn't necessarily resonate as humor and it's just it obviously was perpetuated by the reviews and the disconnect that a lot of men had uh, with the humor, the fucking hilarious movie that was Booksmart because it wasn't told for them through their lens. And so it was relegated to not funny. But she won, Olivia Wilde won a Spirit Award for Best Director. Didn't she win Best Director? 
I think people there there are still you know groups of people who really enjoyed the film, but really needling out those those critical comments and and kind of seeing even through the perspective of Brandon, my partner, just the idea that certain scenes land differently when you have been encultured to see humor in pretty much one specific vein. So it just, it took me down a personal rabbit hole. And so mine's a little selfish. My favorite podcast is a little bit selfish. Because so selfish. It's just the theoretical nom nom that I, that I enjoyed so much as we dug deeper into why ladies are funny and why it's just as valid mm-hmm. as male uh, comedians and non-gender bodied com- comedians. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just. Yeah. I mean, yes, <clears throat> that was a really cool film. And mm-hmm. You also said scratching at new meat, which was a cool sentence. <laughs> and she did a really good gesture. And oh, Rochelle has yeah. like the most beautiful fingernails I've ever seen in my life. Oh my so gosh. So like, like bones. It's like straight meat. up bones coming out of her fingernails. now. Make you bleed. Sorry. Oh my gosh. So those are our favorite podcasts from 2019 for great reasons. And we're about to embark on an entirely new season. Season three, where we will definitely be diving into more film, something I think I'm most excited for 2020, though I loved the lady love of 2019. I really appreciate how much we embraced female directors. I'm excited to, you know, carry the torch and live that whole we are feminists lifestyle and and figure out how to create this equality thing in in what we choose to review and, and choose to view and in that way, we'll hopefully be able to see progress as mm-hmm. things change, as lenses shift, as more voices are a part of the entire process. We won't be so, you know, manhandled. Mm. Mm. Scratch at that meat. <laughs> oh Such a cool sentence. <laughs> it's part Scratch of my vocabulary. That new meat. Scratch it's at so that creepy. Meat. It's amazing. <laughs> my dream for 2020 kind of piggybacks on what you said I think Rochelle that I would like to see more actual grassroots opportunities for filmmakers I think oftentimes unique or new stories or stories that at least feel new come from left field and it would be really nice to see grassroots filmmakers being funded on a level that they could get some national exposure I think because of technology and how easy it is to access it it's almost become impossible for actual independent filmmakers to to break past a certain ceiling. But I think with films like Moonlight, for example, it can really change the landscape of film by hearing these other stories. So that would be my dream for 2020 is more opportunities for actual grassroots filmmakers to break into the film industry on a national level. Yeah, and, and going forward with like the idea that Barry Jenkins didn't create a universal film he created a film that's telling a, a, a story that we haven't gotten to see before. And I, I like that idea. Yeah, we have fun with blockbusters. We get to review them. We get to pick them apart. We get to look at what that does to to the current landscape. But those films that tell a story that is new to viewers, go Jenkins. Yeah, Moonlight is just such a standout in my mind forever because it is. It's, it's deep. It's deep characterization that has to see the light of day. And we need more. A takeaway that I have for 2019 would be a moment that we experienced at the Art House Convergence in Midway, Utah. We attended a panel called The Future of Film, 
distribution is female. And they talked about numbers essentially and films that do well and films that don't during that panel. And something that I really internalized and mold over was that women are making a lot of film and that's great. They are primarily making serious films like films that tackle really difficult topics or really heavy content and those films don't draw like a comedy does and so this goes back to what you were saying about book smart there is this huge there's essentially this void uh, of women being funny you know um and that is something that i i hope we see more of in 2020 and i do think that promising young I do think that Promising Young Woman could be one of those moments because it is heavy as fuck, but it you kind of laugh, you know? I think that they are handling it lightly, and I think that that's really refreshing, and I think it's really necessary so that women don't get pigeonholed into only handling one type of content that's either very feminine or very serious. Um, so that's a dream that I have um, for 2020. And Promising Woman, Young Woman is one of the films I'm really anticipating. We have had really funny women in our sphere helmed by men. Maya Rudolph, just like so many names come to mind of these hilarious women that are working together, but so many of their projects are still helmed by men and they're still written by men. So I would love to see that that humor continue to be championed by female directors, female writers, non-gender bodied individuals to shift the lens just just enough so we're encompassing those those specific moments that men don't know yet but will once they view them they get to be part of the language right at that point they mm -hmm. they get to find out the translation so that's I, that's my one addition is just I would love to continue to see like Olivia Wilde did with Booksmart mm -hmm. the helming of the humor and taking it all the way all the way to the box office. Mm -hmm. I've heard really good things about Emma too by Autumn mm -hmm. DeWilde. It's her directorial debut, but it's reviewed to be very funny and, mm -hmm. and she's brought in, apparently, we are going to review it, A. Um, but she's brought in a lot of modern humor is what I've read in reviews of it so far. So we that's, love that. Yeah, so that's just another example of comedy that, are, that will be released in 2020, helmed by a woman. I'm also really excited for Antebellum. Not a comedy, but like, whoa, that looks messed <laughs> Is up. Is that the one about the cult? Janelle Monet. Oh, I have no idea what oh. it's about. She's in a field. It's like surrealism. That's really right. all I know. And there's an airplane. And right. Jordan is the executive producer? I think he is. We're Jordan. on a first name basis. Oh, yeah. With jo Jordan. Just, you know, just Jay. You know, no, Jordan. Jay. Oh. I know him personally. Jordan Peele. Excuse me. Peele, fine. I do want to say Willem Dafoe got robbed oh by not gosh. being nominated for best actor. For real. The Always. monologue he delivers at the end of that film with dirt, dirt in his going mouth. going in his, every orifice. And just every face. time I looked at him. It was grossed out. Was, and it was awesome. But like it was disgusting <laughs> and so funny oh. and just so brilliant that but, I just yeah. needed to say it. The nuance he brings. I just feel like he's always robbed. He just he deserves so so much more than he than he gets. Like <laughs> his depiction of Vincent Van Gogh last year was remarkable. That film was beautiful, and he he did it his own way. He's always bringing his 
own side to a character that you would think would be played in a very specific way. And it's he's the only person who can do that. He's the only person who can bring that character to life. And we cannot say that about all actors out there. We can't. And so I really hope that his time to shine more is is, is on the horizon. He deserves it. Like Brad Pitt being Brad Pitt, like I love me some Brad Pitt. Okay. <laughs> and the mullet that he had at the Oscars. Delicious. Hooray. Hooray, Brad. But yeah, Willem Dafoe is wrong. Seriously, that is such a great point. Truly. I mean, I, I don't feel like you can compare those two. No. There's just completely different. Different level. Context. Well, it was subject matter, delivery, everything. Because one of them was just being themselves and one of them was acting. <laughs> Sorry, Brad. You're beautiful. Very beautiful. Willem. You're also kind of beautiful. We should have a weird, like, old man crush on him. Sorry. Just a couple old man crushes. He doesn't look as old man, like, on the red carpet as he looks the oldest of old man he's ever looked in the White House. I think that he is doing everything right. He is. Go, Willem. Yay, Willem. You're handsome. You're handsome. (laughs) You're talented. We love (laughs) you. What a fantastic year 2019 was. We didn't get to see all of the films. Our opinions are our opinions. We're so thankful that we get to have these opinions and needle them and change them and learn and grow. And I know that's something that we all feel is that once we get in this room with our notes and we start challenging one another in love and in creativity, we all get to walk away with additional concepts and ideas and insight into all aspects of, of the films that we get to podcast about, that we get to Crow talk about. And I can't wait for more. I'm so thankful uh, for this safe space and for the ability to challenge the status quo together. It's delicious. Ooh. I love yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> well said. Wow. I love this safe space. So bring on 2020. Year Students three. 2020. Season three. Season three, so cool. baby. I know, very cool. Go us. <laughs> Crow Talk signing off. Signing up. For the last time for season two. For season two. Oh. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, our 10,000 listeners. <laughs> I think we're up to a million now. <laughs> a million. At least. At least. That we International audience. Be sure to catch the films you've missed if possible. And if not, you know, just keep on trucking. More films are going to be made. You always have an opportunity to jump in on the conversation. And you always have Amazon Prime. <laughs> Some of you do. This episode sponsored by Amazon Time. <laughs> not really. No. No, no it's not. not an affiliation. It's not no uh, no okay, affiliation. Okay, everyone get off the mic. Okay, bye. Ah. Ah. This has been a Talking to Crows production. <laughs>